Well, good morning, everybody, and um, thank you again for all of, uh, all of those who have served so faithfully, uh, serving Christ at this church. It's just um, such a beautiful reality to see so many contributing hands into the work of the ministry, and we'll even talk about that a little bit later in the sermon. But um, I wanted to start out by talking about New Year's resolutions, because this is the time, okay? This is the time of year where um, the end is coming, and right after Christmas, the focus turns towards the new year. And traditionally, there have been a number of different resolutions, and uh, this is at least just a, a glimpse of some, and so you guys have eyes, and, and you can read some of what they are. These are just samples paying off debt, saving money, eating healthy, losing weight, quitting smoking or drinking or another addictive substance, um, boning parents or prioritizing family and relationships. All of these are really just samples. And these are many of the different resolutions that the world suggests for us. But one thing I've noticed is that sometimes many people don't even understand the purpose of resolutions, which is the case with our first cartoon, as we have Angus and Phil right here, and Angus says, or at least I think that's Angus, I'm assuming it is, what exactly is a New Year's resolution? And Phil replies, it's a to-do list for the first week of January, okay? Um, oftentimes resolutions are broken right away, which is the case with our second one here. Um, we have uh, green guy and orange guy hanging out, and orange guy um, initiates the conversation, and he says to green guy, so New Year's resolution, you go first. And green guy responds, I've resolved to stop being judgmental of others. And orange guy shares, I've resolved to start using herbal remedies instead of going to the doctor. Green guy replies, I just broke my resolution, right? Didn't, didn't last very long. And then, of course, you have all of those folks who make unrealistic resolutions, as is the case with cartoon number three. Thanks for not laughing at my absurdly unattainable New Year's resolution. Okay, and I don't know why that had an accent with it, but it just, it just comes. It just looks like they might talk that way. Um, and then we have, of course, the, the final cartoon, which uh, really helps us see um, those who who really have no desire to change and don't understand why anyone would even suggest a resolution, we have this guy. Resolutions? Me? Just what are you implying? That I need to change? Well, buddy, as far as I'm concerned, I am perfect the way I am. Yes, you are, my friend. Yes, you are. Well, regardless of what your experience has been with New Year's resolutions, there's an inherent logic behind them when we take a closer look at the word. And the word is actually derived from uh, two words, resolved and solution, okay? That's how we get the, the word resolution. To be resolved means to be determined. It means to be focused or intentional about something. And solution, in this case, is speaking of an answer to a problem or a desired result. And understanding what it means to make a resolution will help us understand the passage that God has for us today. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. And the title of today's message is The Unchanging Resolution. 
God's desire for everyone is to be resolved to give him glory. To be resolved as we, those of us in Christ, would live in such a way that God would be glorified. First, we must make sure that we're in Christ. If we have no desire to make um, any changes or Actually, there'll be no desire to make any spiritual resolutions unless we have spiritual life. God gives us such desires when our heart is converted, when it's changed to live for Him. When we repent from turning from living an empty, selfish life filled with selfish ambition and futile desires, and we trust completely alone in Christ for salvation. Then life and the resolve to live for God's glory can truly begin. And God wants us determined. He wants us decided. He wants us committed and focused so that our daily lives, our daily living would exalt who He is, would bring Him glory. How do Christians do that? How do we do that? God gives us instructions in 1 Peter 4, verses 7-11. through And I'm reading from the New American Standard, which says this, starting in verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as the one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our passage reflects a biblical concept that is consistent throughout all of Scripture, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God's glory is put on display through the lives of believers. Really, it could be said this way, that all instruction from above is designed with a purpose to give glory to God. Yet as we'll see in our passage today, it provides ways that we can express our commitments. Three commitments to fulfill our unchanging resolution to give God glory. Commitment number one, be right-headed. Commitment number two, be right-hearted. And commitment number three, be responsible. God had Peter record this letter to a group of Christians, and those familiar with the background of this letter know that these weren't just your everyday normal Christians. These weren't believers struggling to get to church on Sunday mornings, but these were first century Christians who were suffering some of the worst persecution in the history of Christendom. And it all took place in the early 60s. And I'm not talking about 
the 1960s, talk, you know, dominated with Talking Barbie and Roy Orbison and Ray Charles on top of the music charges. I'm talking about first century Christianity. These were real people living during a real time, suffering very real persecution. During this time period, nearly everyone was subject to Roman law. And Roman emperors were given so much power and control over their subjects that some people actually considered them as gods. They would, in some instances, receive worship from people because of their elevated position by allowing the kissing of their ring or to have people bow down until they were given permission to rise before them. Nauseating, I know. There was one Roman emperor by the name of Nero who was the worst. And Nero's desire was to make Rome even greater by destroying the less attractive parts of the city and to rebuild them according to his tastes. In order to do this, he decided that he would burn the portions of the city that he didn't like. And as you can imagine, the people who were subject to these areas of arson, okay, weren't real fond of having their homes and buildings and personal belongings destroyed. And so, Nero had to blame someone for these fires. And he conveniently blamed the Christians. As a result, Romans hated Christians with the utmost hatred. And you're familiar with this, many of us who have seen movies that have even demonstrated this, where Christians were actually fed in the arenas before applauding crowds, fed to lions, and eaten alive. Though it is not known with certainty whether Peter was led to write this first letter before or after Nero's persecution, we know with certainty that the level of persecution was still very, very high. Things were very difficult for Christians. And so God used Peter to record a letter to them to help them be resolved to live for God's glory. And what could God possibly have Peter say or express to these people who were going through such turmoil? How could they possibly be encouraged? Well, there's an outline of 1 Peter located in your bulletin. And God had Peter encourage them by remembering three things. Remember your great salvation. Starting in chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. Remember your example before men, which is the bulk of the epistle. And Peter, this, this shepherd, written with a shepherd's heart, writes this letter as the Spirit directed him to remember your example before men. And finally, remember your Lord will return. And that takes place in chapter 4, verse 7, all the way through the end of the epistle. And this entire letter bears the theme to be resolved to live for God's glory amid suffering. And I wanted you to see this outline so that you could see where our passage fits in today. And it starts right at the beginning of the third portion. Remember, your Lord will return. And this is why verse 7 started by saying, 
the end of all things is near. It is a reminder that Christ's return is imminent. How might this statement encourage these people? Have you ever watched a movie or you've seen um, an example, maybe even in real life, of somebody who is suffering, um, horrific suffering, right? Maybe it's a physical injury, but they're suffering big time. And I know we have a number of medical professionals here in our church that see this with regularity. I was out on a jog when I lived up in the valley and I was going around the block and I was coming down the backside of the block and coming up to uh, Haskell and Lassen, an intersection there in the valley, and a drunk driver had just pulled out and, or just turned left right in front of a motorcycle that he hadn't seen. And there was people that were standing off to the side and um, I made sure that they had already called it in and I went running very quickly over to this guy who was laying down on the ground. And his leg was completely mangled. It was, it was twisted so much so that I could actually see the, the internal area of his knee. I could see the, the, the guts of his knee. And, I, and surprisingly, there wasn't that much blood. And uh, those medical professionals in the room will tell you that if that femoral artery had been severed in his leg, um, he would have been on a running clock for his life. But all I could do was just go over to him. And I knew not to move him till the medical team got there. And I just went down and he was conscious and he was talking. And I just grabbed his hand and I said, can I do anything for you? Is there something that I can do? And he said, can you just call my wife? My cell phone's in my pocket. And just call my wife and just let her know what's happened, that I'm going to be okay. And I said, sure, I can do that. And I, I called his wife and explained what had happened, that the medical team was on the way. And then I just sat there with him. And I held his hand and just gave him reassurance. And as severely injured people are lying there waiting for help, many times the sound of an ambulance or a siren, a police siren, in the distance coming, approaching, is an encouragement. They know that help is on the way. And the siren that God has Peter sound off comes in the form of the third portion of this letter that basically exhorts them by saying, listen, I know things are difficult. I know the persecution is real. I know that life is hard right now. But the Lord is coming soon. Help is on the way. Be resolved to live to the glory of God. And just as I attempted to give that man in the motorcycle accident, words of encouragement before a medical team could come to his rescue, God used the Apostle Peter in a much more significant way to record these instructions to suffering Christians so that they could be resolved to live for God's glory. Again, we're focusing on three commitments to fulfill our unchanging resolution as believers. And our first commitment is found in our study of verse 7. Be right-headed. And certainly being right-headed involves focusing on the imminent reality of Christ's return. There's an encouraging aspect, an eschatological aspect that encourages our hearts. But Peter continues by encouraging believers to engage the process with their heads. After the end of all things 
is near, the verse continues, Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. If you or I or any believer in this room is going to be resolved to live for the glory of God in 2014 or any year beyond, it's going to start right here. It's going to start right here. It's be of sound judgment. It literally means be in your right mind. Repentance, which literally means the renewal of the mind, involves connections with both the head and the heart. And our second point, we'll talk about being right-hearted. But for now, it is something that our mind must be engaged in. And according to Ephesians 4, 21 through 23, this is how we learned about Christ. It says this in verse 21, If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. What is Scripture saying? It confirms that from God's point of view, that every single person on this planet, due to sin, their mind is darkened. Their mind is corrupted. We do not think good thoughts naturally. It's actually described as the noetic effect of the fall. It has nothing to do with Noah and the ark. It comes from the Greek word nous, which means mind. And due to the noetic effect of the fall, our minds are tainted. And repentance literally renews our mind to think correctly about God and to think correctly about how we can live for His glory. And Romans 12.2 instructs us this way, not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And the Greek word for uh, transformed is actually metamorphomai. And it's where we get our English word metamorphosis. And just like a butterfly being transformed and released from the captivity of a cocoon, so our minds as believers are spiritually being transformed and renewed so that we can literally, as 1 Peter 4, 7 calls us to be, be in our right mind. And this is why the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 55 and verses 7 through 9, it says, let the wicked man forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly party. Pardon. It will be a party when you pardon, when he pardons. God goes on to say this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. There's a second command given in verse 7 that encourages us to be right-headed. And it literally is this, be sober. Or your Bible translation might even say, uh, be of sober spirit or sober-minded. And this command is encouraging believers to stay spiritually alert in our minds. 
Don't allow your mind to get drunk or intoxicated with impure thoughts. The immediate context of our opening six verses of 1 Peter chapter 4 actually warns against sinful, lustful desires that without a doubt have their foundation in our flesh. They can be triggered when we don't have mental alertness, when we don't keep our mind alert. And victory in the Christian life is engaged with sober-mindedness or being spiritually alert. And the world and the path of foolishness invites people to do this. What? You just, hey, you take life as it comes. You just take life as it comes. You're walking down the path of life and you hit your head and you make mistakes, right? And, oh, I walked down that path before. I'm, I'm going to learn next time not to, to go that way. They, they, they actually say that. It's, it's a cliche of the world, right? Live and learn. We live and we learn. When the exact opposite is true for the believer. We learn so that we can live. We learn so that we can live. The path of wisdom or the fruit of being right-headed steers us away from the pitfalls of the world. And according to verse 7, spiritual right-headedness should also lead us to prayer. Our verse says, Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of of prayer. I love this passage because the Lord actually provides our application for these commands. Right here, they, they lead us to pray. And prayer cultivates our relationship with the Lord as we express our dependency upon Him. We could preach an entire sermon series on prayer and still not do it justice. But it's a primary and vital discipline of the Christian life. I love the expression, when in doubt, look up. Being right-headed should drive us to our knees in dependence upon the Lord, and our doubts will then be consumed by our faith as we trust in the Lord completely to provide us with exactly what we need. And most, if not all, Christians have had this experience to some degree or another. You're, you're reading your Bible you're being right-headed. You're, 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 you're bringing in the knowledge of the Word of God, and God allows you to see how awesome He is. God allows you to see how holy He is, and His Word functions as a mirror, just like it's mentioned in James 2, when we look at it intently and our desire is to be right-hearted, uh, right-headed, and, and we, we see the reflection of who we are and who we aren't. And it leads us to seek God and to pray for forgiveness as He convicts us of sin in our life. Repentance and prayer go hand in hand. And certainly the context of 1 Peter reminds us of persecution as well. These believers were facing great difficulty. And being right-headed also means that we should be led to pray when we also face persecution in our life. Spiritual information leads to spiritual transformation. And the purpose of being right-headed, we are told in 1 Peter 4, 7, is so that we would pray, that we would be praying people, that we would be led to pray. And if 
our prayer life is suffering, then it could be, it could be an indication of wrongheadedness. Scripture fuels right-headedness. Prayer is the result of right-headedness. Then prayer, it, it invokes the Almighty as we bring our requests to Him. And when the Almighty answers, look out. That's right where we want to be. That's when we're fulfilling the ultimate, the unchanging resolution. Scripture fuels right-headedness. Right-headedness fuels prayer. Prayer invokes the Almighty, and the Almighty answers according to His will. Next month on the third Sunday in February, we're actually going to hear an entire sermon on prayer and its significance to our ministry. The Word and prayer fuel each other as we will see. Well, today we're studying three commitments to fulfill our unchanging resolution as believers. Our first commitment and what it means is to be right-headed. And 1 Peter 4 doesn't start and stop with our heads. Believers also need to be right-hearted. Verse 8 and 9 share this. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. And I know right here in this passage, it looks like we're being commanded to love, but actually the, um, the word is a, keeping fervent in our love is actually a participle that is supporting or undergirding what it means to be right-headed, to be of sober, uh, to be of sound judgment and sober spirit. It's actually uh, supporting those things. And I wanted to share this because God's will is that both our heads and our hearts function in unity. The Bible teaches that the head and heart are really the same thing. It's the inner man. There, there is no distinction that it's both the head and the heart. But for the sake of making a point, I want to make a distinction. Pharisee, like people who are right-headed, but wrong-hearted will not glorify God. And likewise, emotionally driven people who disregard the importance of God's instruction don't glorify God either. The right-headedness and right-heartedness speak to the inner man. The distinction allows us to see that there should be a balance between knowledge in the mind and emotion in the heart. And our passage will help us see this connection as we progress in verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And above all actually speaks to this connection. This will allow us to see the head-heart connection. Above all brings emphasis to love. And though we technically are not being commanded to love in this passage, we are actually commanded in, in the exact same fa fashion in 1 Peter 1, 22. And we're also commanded to love in other New Testament passages. And it's agape love, which is being talk, talked about. Agape love, is a, it's capable of being commanded because it's not just limited to an emotion, but it's a decision leading to action as well. And agape love, according to this verse, is to be eager 
or, or an earnest love. It literally means to be strained. And it denotes the stretching or straining. Ancient Greek literature used the word to describe a horse stretching and running out full speed. Anyone in the movie, anyone in the room seen the movie Secretariat? All right, all right. Yes, I watch movies on occasion. I'll have you know. And those who have seen the movie Secretariat, it's about horse racing, okay? And the, the Triple Crown deal, whatever. But anyway, the, 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 one of the last scenes of the movie, right? And I can't give away the ending, especially for those who haven't seen, seen it, but it, I, 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 on the last lap, there's a horse that's pulling away from all the other horses, and it's in slow motion. And it's so cool. And you just see the muscles of the horse, and they're stretching, and they're reaching out with each stride, and it's silent. And you just hear, boodoo, boodoo, boodoo. And it's just stretching and reaching and reaching and reaching. And this is exactly the picture of agape love. It strains, it reaches, it stretches. It takes great effort in reaching out. It's a love, according to 1 Corinthians 13, describes it this way in verses 4 through 7. It's patient, it's kind, it's gracious. It's, it doesn't... It doesn't keep a record of wrongs suffered. It bears all things. It believes the best about people. It's an enduring love. It's a powerful love. It's a love that is unbelievably potent. And this love, according to the end of verse 8, has the capacity to cover a multitude of sins. It is a right-hearted love because it's a divine love. It has the capacity to cover a multitude of sins. And some theologians think that this is only speaking of God's love. Very few. Some believe that it's speaking to human love, which God enables us to share with each other. And then others take it as a combination of those two views. I believe the Lord can be honored in any of them. But considering the context of the passage, I firmly believe it's speaking to the love that we're enabled to give to others. And that's why it supports the commands. Again, keeping fervent is a participle that undergirds and supports being of sound judgment and sober spirit. And the Bible only gives us two options when someone sins against us. We know what they are, right? Two options. Matthew 18, 15, if there's a serious breakdown as a result of sin, what scriptures say that we're to do? We're to go to them and privately. And we're to, to seek to reconcile so that forgiveness can be reached. But the second option we're given right here in verse 8. In many instances, or using a word from our verse, in a multitude of instances, our love covers it. And we, we forgive them, right? There's no need to bring it up. We choose 
willingly to remember it no more. We don't bring it up to ourselves. We don't bring it up to them. We don't bring it up to others. But it's not easy. It's not. It takes effort. Yet this is what agape love can accomplish. It's a pure love with pure motives. It doesn't ask what's in it for me. It doesn't say, if you do this for me, then. It doesn't say anything about how well you know or don't know someone. It doesn't say anything about being inconvenienced. It doesn't complain or grumble or resent. And how do we know this? Verse 9 continues by describing the very practical nature of this love. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Biblically speaking, hospitality means a love of strangers. That's what it means. Being right-hearted means that Christians will love and care for strangers and will do it in such a way that God will be glorified. And again, it's a participle, so it's actually better translated being hospitable or giving hospitality. The Greek word also, uh, and I love this word, hospitality, because it it shares the, the same root as the word hospital. You may not know that. Hospitals provide health care. They care for the health of those who come with their many different problems. Is that a fair statement? Where's Hyun when I need him? Hyun, is that... that or, 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 or maybe I should be more clear by saying Kaiser Hospitals. Okay, I'm treading on dangerous ground right here. All hospitals attempt to provide the best possible care that they can. And I actually worked for a healthcare corporation up in Alaska as a training manager in resource and development. And so I know this. Our hospitals always try to provide quality healthcare. And for those of you who work in the hospital, you already know this so well. On occasion, you might see somebody that you know coming in to get treated. But more often than not, the people who are coming in, you have no previous relationship with them. But yet, you provide the best possible care that you can give to them. Why? Why? Because you care. Because you've been trained to take care of them. You've been trained to ask questions and, um, and try to help them and have them explain their symptoms and match up the answers with the problems that they're having so that you can assist them in the most meaningful and adequate way. And I want to share something that I hope everyone in this room will meditate on for a long, long time. This church, Cornerstone Bible Church, this is our hospital. This is our hospital. And it doesn't matter who comes through those doors on a Sunday or any day of the week. Our goal is to care for them. Our goal is to um, help them. If they have a spiritual need, we want to minister to them. If they have a physical need, 
we want to do all that we can to supply it and help them in the most adequate and most appropriate way. This includes you, by the way. This includes the people in this room. It's not just, oh, the love of strangers and we neglect ourselves. We actually share that hospitality, the love for strangers with one another. It's beautiful. And what's so encouraging is to see how so many of you do this already. You're loving and you're gracious. And it magnifies the Lord Jesus Christ. It glorifies God at work in you. Well, how can being right-hearted be applied according to 1 Peter 4, 8, and 9? Certainly a great starting place is to spend some time reflecting on 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, which define the practical aspects of agape love. You could write down the aspects that you struggle with. Is your, are, are your struggles with one person or with many people in that aspect? Ask someone in your care group or ask your spouse to share the strongest aspect that you display of love. And then also be bold enough and courageous enough to ask them for the weakest aspect that they see. And then spend some time thinking about why is this area strong and this area is weak? And God, what do you want me to do to change? How do you want me to to be strengthened in that area? Hospitality can be provided in numerous ways. You can invite someone who is visiting CBC to lunch. Invite somebody who's brand new that you don't know to come hang out with our group and, or come hang out with our family and, and come over for lunch. I've seen this happen a, a number of times already. And maybe you struggle with this. Maybe you, it's difficult for you to reach out to people you don't know. Remember that this type of love takes effort. It takes, it takes straining. It takes getting out of our comfort zone. Maybe you can consider um, serving as a greeter on Sunday and, and working on that. Practice reaching out intentionally. Find people that you don't know well. Maybe you've seen somebody week after week and you're just like, gosh, it's kind of weird now. I see them week after week, but I haven't really ever connected. Reach out to them. Seek them out. Strive to get to know them for the sake of love. Here's an application. How about showing love to our family members and spouses at home? If the church is considered our hospital, and it is, then our homes are certainly our clinics, right? right? They're, 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 they're practical every day. We, we, God has blessed and ordained a number of opportunities for us to practice hospitality at home, serving each other, racing to do the dishes, what? Did he just say that? We're going to race to do the dishes. I will beat you to do the dishes at your house. Run to do the dishes. Our families give us opportunities to practice this all the time. And again, it's not about getting something from someone in return. We already get something. Something greater than any person could ever give us. We get the opportunity to put God on display through our actions and our attitudes. We get to glorify the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We get to do it for him. 
It's powerful. We're focused on 1 Peter 4, and we're studying three commitments to fulfill our unchanging resolution as believers. And we've considered what it means to be right-headed in verse 7. We've uh, considered what it it means to be right-hearted in verses 8 and 9. And our third and final commitment encourages us to be responsible in verses 10 and 11. It says this, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. What an encouraging text. God equips us. God provides for us everything that we need to fulfill the unchanging resolution. Each of us is gifted in a unique capacity to serve others. I use the word responsible because it was an R word, but I think it, it, it is really reflected and it's even mentioned in the verse. What, we are, what are we really talking about? We're talking about good stewardship. Our gifts in many ways are like muscles on our bodies. If, if we don't use them, we don't ever lose them, okay? But anyone who's had a broken arm or a broken leg and it's been casted and you don't use it for a while, you know what happens. It shrinks up. It atrophies. It gets weak. And it can be underdeveloped. And God wants us to exercise our gifts. And his gym is the local church. And many of you in this room know and have some recognition about how God has gifted you and made you able to serve the body and to serve him. But some of you may not know how God has gifted you to serve. And certainly a future study on the spiritual gifts might bless us all. I look forward to having that opportunity. But for now, our passage does offer some standard instruction. In verse 11, Peter puts these manifestations of grace in two broad categories. He talks about speaking gifts and serving gifts. And speaking gifts cover all forms of oral service. Teaching, preaching, counseling. And we see different people in our church family with these gifts. Those who teach FOF classes premarital classes, Sunday school classes and children's ministries, Bible studies or book studies in our care groups. These are all samples of teachers gifted by God and employing their spiritual gifts. And verse 11 shares that whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God or speaking the very words of God, which drives home the biblical emphasis of what is being taught. What does God's word have to say? This will sound familiar. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And just on a side note, I just wanted to share this with everybody in the room. I am so thankful to be at a church where there's such a high view of God's word and that 
It's built within the fabric of this church and within the culture that you would show up Sunday after Sunday and allow whoever stands behind this pulpit to preach, in some instances, 45-minute or even longer expositions of God's Word and that you would receive it. That's just, I, I rejoice in that. Did you know that there are some churches where the pastors are actually limited to preaching 20 or 25-minute sermons? And that's it. I can't even say hello in 25 minutes. You guys know this. And, and, and yet you, you embrace it. And you rejoice um, in, the, in the teaching from this pulpit and the classroom settings that so graciously allow the, for the time necessary to honor God's word. I, I rejoice in that. And I know that you do as well. Well, the second category of gifts are serving gifts. And serving gifts don't necessarily mean that people don't speak. I mean, just basic discipleship requires that we speak and and serve. Basic discipleship would require that. But serving gifts reflect certain qualities that some believers may have that others may not. Not not everyone is gift to serve in the kitchen. We get that. Saw a couple eyes roll just then. Not everyone can serve on the tech team, running sound and lighting or recording equipment or updating the church website. Not everyone is gifted to serve and disciple children. Not everyone. Not everyone can lead worship and provide vocal leadership. But one thing is for certain. God does gift everyone to serve him by serving others in some capacity within the the body of Christ. You have been gifted. How has God gifted you to serve the church? Are you being a good steward of the gifts that he has given you? Our passage started out today by saying this. The end of all things is near. And it is. And it is. The end of all things is near. And we just want to be the best stewards that we could possibly be. But it didn't stop there. It didn't just give us that reminder. It said what? The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Be right-headed. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Be right-hearted. As each one has received a special gift, employ it as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to speak as one who is speaking what the utterances of God, the word of God. Whoever serves is to serve in the strength which he supplies. Be, be responsible, be good stewards. And why do any of this? Why do any of it? Am I being legalistic? 
Do I want to impose things upon you? Do I want to give you a to-do list? Is that my goal as a shepherd and a pastor to do that to, to, so that you can be, be weighted down because God is saying, do this? No. No. And most sermons don't ever save the best for last, but God did with 1 Peter 4.11 when he said, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And we do it because God has given us an opportunity to glorify him. He's given us the opportunity to be right-headed and to be right-hearted and to be responsible so that he can receive that worship, that he can receive that glory. And it's beautiful. And it's everywhere in scripture. The psalmist saw it. Not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Paul reminded us of it in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever it is that you do, we do it all. We do it all to the glory of God. We sing it. Glory to God. I'm not gonna sing for you. Glory to God. Glory to God forever take my heart and let it be all for you and for your glory take my heart and let it be yours when we do that when we embrace what god has for us in first peter 4 you know what it does it allows us to fulfill the unchanging resolution as believers. I'm grateful to be at a place where everyone would rally around. And let me just say something this bold. 2014, what's it going to be? What's it going to be like for you spiritually? What is it going to be like for you spiritually? It will be the best year of your life spiritually if you are committed to the unchanging resolution because you are a work in progress and God is taking you to a place and you are at a place that you have never been before. You're constantly growing. You're constantly moving forward. And with that growth, God is allowing greater opportunities for us to embrace the reality of the commitment. It's awesome. He's awesome. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow our heads just acknowledging the fact that you are so good to us and that you would allow our hearts to even be engaged by your word this morning to receive the instruction that you would have for us. And Lord, you just want us to live for you. You just want our lives to count. And we want them to count. We literally want to be walking mirrors that reflect glory back to you and praise you for the goodness 
and the giftedness and all the things that you've equipped us with so that we can serve you and serve one another. And I'm so thankful. My heart is filled with joy as I look around and I see people in this church. Even the music playing in the background is a reminder of someone that you have gifted to serve in this capacity. I'm so thankful. And Father, I pray that you would continue to cultivate the giftedness that's within every person in this room. That we would continue to make strides and that our love would continue to grow. And that we would reach out and that we would stride and we would do things that are hard. And Lord, I just pray for all of us at home as we serve each other and our families. It's it's filled with challenge. And you know this because you've ordained those trials and those struggles even within our home so that we can see our need for you and that we would embrace being right-headed and right-hearted and responsive. That you would be magnified through even the challenges that we run into, even the, the tumultuous times where it's just, it's just difficult. And Lord, we're so weak and we acknowledge that, but you also remind us with a great encouragement that as we do all of this, that whoever serves is to serve in the strength which you supply. And we praise you for that. Because in our flesh, we feel like we are run out of energy that will just run out. And yet if we focus on you, if we focus on your word, we will have the fuel. We will have what we need to embrace this life and embrace the ministry challenges. The ministry challenges of our hospital here, right here, the church. The ministry challenges of our clinics at home. Father, we just want to thank you for giving us this opportunity. And not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. To your name be the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.